It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Um, I want to start by just asking you a question. If you were to go around and start just asking random people in the world, who do they love most, who do you think they would say? I mean, obviously you can't do it right now because we're all in lockdown in this pandemic, but, but if you could, and you could just go to your neighbors, people on the streets, people in the stores, and just ask them, just get a general survey of, if you were to say, who do you love the most, what do you think they would say? Would it be their spouse? Perhaps their children? Perhaps dear, close friends? Maybe their father or mother? But now what if, you ask that same question to a Christian. See, the Christian would and ought to respond that the person they love most is God. God. Christians love God. He is our great treasure. There is none like God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism question four says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, Holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This is the God we love. This is the God we want to know more and to be known by this God. We want to be loved and cherished by this God. And as John Piper rightly put it, he says, God is infinite, and that answers our longing for completeness. He is eternal, and that answers our longing for permanence. He is unchangeable, and that answers our longing for stability and security. There is none like God. Nothing can compare with him. Wealth, sex, power, popularity, conquest, productivity, great achievement, nothing can compare with this God. And I think he's right. And as we grow in maturity and our knowledge of him, we actually desire to know him more. The more we know him, the more we love him, the more we trust him, the more we desire a deeper intimate knowledge and fellowship with this God. And this is the prayer and desire for all of us believers. The first Westminster Shorter Catechism question asks, what is the chief end of all man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Enjoying God is the way to glorify God. But to enjoy and glorify God, we must know him. Seeing is treasuring. If he remains vague or blurry, then maybe for a season he'll seem interesting. But what happens when you experience a deep trial in your life? Are you still enjoying God then? Let me ask it a little more pointedly. Are you still enjoying God in the midst of COVID-19? So the purpose of the next few weeks is to grow in our understanding of God. Our, our God is the triune God. He's one God in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, yet distinct. We, we often don't think much of salvation or the gospel. It, it's that first doctrine that we come to love because that's what saves us, but then after that, then we move on to the more important doctrines of life. But that's, that's just not true. The most glorious and in searchable doctrine is the doctrine of salvation. It's the gospel. We'll be pondering and thinking through the gospel for eternity, and we'll still never come to fully grasp everything God has done in it. So we want to spend some time thinking about it, and, and we want to ask and answer this question. How does our triune God work in salvation? 
Again, we're going to seek to answer the question, how does our triune God work in salvation? What we're going to come to see is that since the time of the fall of man, there's only one way of salvation. The triune God working in harmony to accomplish redemption for his people. See, God must be triune, and each person of the Trinity must be actively working in our salvation. Otherwise, no one can be saved. Let me state that one more time. Our God must be triune, and each person of the Trinity must be actively working in our salvation. Otherwise, no one can be saved. No one can be saved. Now this week, we're going to focus on the Father's role in salvation. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the Son's role. And lastly, in the third week, we're going to look at the Spirit's role in salvation. So as we approach the text this morning, I just want to sketch a general map of where we're headed so we can follow along. First, we're going to examine God's, God the Father's work in salvation. Then we're going to look at some common objections. And lastly, we're going to look at our response. Fair enough? We're going to look at God the Father's work in salvation, common objections, and lastly, our response. So as we begin, pray with me, church. Oh, gracious Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us, our undeserved grace that you've given to us, most importantly for your Son and the work on the cross. Lord, as we come to you this morning, uh, we just pray for an abundance of the Spirit. Lord, let your Spirit Speak through me. Lord, we pray for the Spirit to help remove distractions that we come with this morning. Lord, it's a long week. There's been ups and downs, trials, sadness, joys. But help us to remove all the distractions from our mind and help us to concentrate on your word this morning. Lord, help give me clarity of thought, clarity of mind. But Lord, we ask that you do the work. Lord, help us to not let this just be an intellectual exercise. Help this to um, shape and mold our hearts. Make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to love and glorify and honor you more and more. Lord, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you will, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be primarily spending most of our time the next three weeks in Ephesians chapter 1, in particular verses 3 through 14. Um, so open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Read with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So just to set the stage here, as we, we come to this text of Ephesians chapter 1, we, we notice in chapter 3, it opens with this benediction of praise. Right? He gives us the reason of this praise. We, we, he is blessed because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. I, I would argue that the better translation would be, he's blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit. It doesn't really, um, when we think of spiritual blessings, we think of blessings that are more religious. But that's not really what Paul's trying to convey. He's trying to convey that we are blessed with every blessing that comes along with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself. It kind of encapsulates this section where he opens with the blessing of the Spirit and he ends with the conversation of the Spirit in verse 14. So it brackets that section. Now, now the blessings that we are have now in Christ are expounded in verse 4 and following. And what we see is the blessing of redemption. So we're going to concentrate our time this morning on God's role and work in this redemption. In, in, chapter, in verse 4, what do we see? We see God the Father choose. God the Father chose us. Right? The verb choose is just to choose, to select. But, but it's emphasizing God's divine initiative to redeem his people. And it's always been this way, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we, we see this beginning with Abraham. Nehemiah 9.7 says, God chose Abraham and entered into a covenant with him. Genesis 18.19, God says, I have chosen him so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he promised him. God chose Isaac over Ishmael in Genesis 17. God chose Jacob over Esau, both to be the children of the promise. We see God choosing the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 through 8. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the people. For you were the fewest of all the people, but because the Lord loved you. He chose the nation of Israel because he loved them. It, it was God's own act of choosing. He selected them based on nothing other than his love which he set upon them. And just like in the Old Testament, we see this in the New Testament as well. We see that Ju Jesus chooses his apostles, including Paul. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, But we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Our text this morning in Ephesians 1, verse 4, it says, Even as he chose us in him. 1 Peter 1, 1, he's writing to those who are elect or called exiles. See, it's always been this way. It's always been God's sovereign selection of people. 
See, Paul doesn't write here in Ephesians that God chose a course of action. He didn't write here to say like God chose uh, uh, a course of action to save all the people that he knew were going to trust in him. But we see here is that God chose people, selecting the individuals which he would save. As Joel Beakey gives this summary of God's choosing, it says, it's the aspect of God's eternal decree of all things in which he sovereignly and lovingly selects according to the incomprehensible counsel of his will alone and nothing good foreseen in us, those whom he will effectively call, justify, sanctify, and glorify by union with Christ. God sovereignly and lovingly selects. Now we see when this choosing and selecting happened. It says before the foundation of the world, it's further emphasizing God's sovereign initiative. It wasn't a rash decision. It wasn't a decision forced upon him. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't simply reacting to people and what they did. It was a set out plan, a choice, to enter into a loving relationship with people. If you're a believer, it was a plan, a choice, to lovingly enter the relationship with you before he ever created the world. And it results in something. It says to be holy and blameless. Now, it's not a progression of moral growth. It's not becoming holier. It's an objective state of purification, effective through atonement and forgiveness. We, we like to talk about sanctification either as progressive, where you're, you're continually growing to be more and more like Christ, which we ought to. But there's also punctiliar sanctification, where in that moment in time, you are purified, set apart, free from the guilt that comes with sin, and forgiven by God. And that's what he's talking about here. And, and we must see this. We must see that, that Christ, in union with Christ, and holiness come together here. There is no holiness apart from union with Christ. Calvin says, What is more fitting with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue in order to be clothed by God? It's true. I mean, if you've ever struggled with sin and seen the struggle and the bondage that you're in and you can't get out, you see in those moments the need of somebody outside of you to help you, to save you. You see the, next, you see the, the need to be clothed and covered by God. Right? We, we have this in the, in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. God clothed them, right? It was a picture of his clothing covering their sin through the sacrifice of an animal. So we see God, God's role in our salvation initially is that God chose us. He selected his people. Next we come to verse 5 and we see something else. We see God in love predestined us. He predestined us. Now I want us to notice uh, five or six things about this predestination. Right? The first thing we see in verse 5, we see God's motive in predestining us. He says, in love. In love. God's not stingy. God's not cruel. He's not some distant 
non-personal God. He is a loving, kind, gracious, merciful God. And it's in this love that he predestined us. I mean, when, when, he's, when he's proclaiming his name to Moses in Exodus 34, 16, he says this. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. And Jeremiah 31, 3 says, or God says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. In the New Testament, we see 1 John 4, 9. It was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God is a loving God. His acts of choosing and predestination is in love. That's his motivation, in love. Now, some of us may have a more difficult time grasping this because maybe our background. So if you come from a background like mine, I, I didn't grow up with a, a loving father. So it's still at times difficult to grasp and understand the love that this father has for us. But we see it at the cross. We, we see it, 1 John 4, 9 says, right? We, we see this manifestation of God's love toward us. He sent Jesus so that we can live forever with him. His motive is love. Next, this predestination has a goal. In verse 5, it says, for adoption. He predestined us for adoption. Now, what does that look like? Right, we understand a lot of the similarities, right? The, the adoption, we, we, we think of kids, right? We think of taking a child from uh, another family or was born to different parents into our family, right? They take on our name. They now receive the blessings of being in our family. We take care of them. We protect them. We provide for them, right? So they have a new name, new status. Um, they find their comfort and love in our home. We become part of their fa our family, Oftentimes our inheritance is now left to them as well. I mean, that was one of the key points for a Greco-Roman adoption is the inheritance was left to a son. But there's some dissimilarities here too, and I think we need to notice them. First of all, we're talking about God, the king of all kings, adopting. In, in the Greco-Roman world, if, if an emperor or some king were to adopt, it's often somebody that was part of their family or a close friend, somebody high society. But this is not what we find in the Bible. That's not what God does. What does God do? He, chose, he chooses the worst people, the sinners, the ones that are opposed to him, that actively hate him. And he chooses those people to adopt and bring into his family. And, and it's not to be a lesser class of his family. I mean, listen, listen to what scholar S.M. Baugh says. He says, He adopts those who were by nature not his kin, but they were children of wrath. They were sons of disobedience. 
They were helpless, wicked, sinful enemies. And God adopts these. Yet he doesn't place these new sons and daughters into a subordinate, inferior family. He appoints them all to become co-heirs with his natural firstborn son, in whom the whole creation is summarized to co-rule over all things with him as those co-seated with him in the high heavenlies. The king of kings takes the worst people and makes them co-rulers. Co-rulers. Co-heirs with Christ, the sinless, perfect son. I mean, just think about that this week. It's, it, it, it's unfathomable. There's, there's nothing that we can compare to on an earthly level. How could the holy, just God, ruler of all things, take such wicked, vile, sinful, rebellious people and make them co-heirs with Christ? Well, we find the answer also in verse 5. It's mediated through Christ. Through Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the heart of the gospel. It's what makes it gracious. It's that Christ took the place of wicked sinners. Adoption can only happen through Christ. Now, we're going to get more into what Christ did next week. But, but here, we're going to briefly touch on the gracious nature of this. Christ took the place of sinners. Sinful people like me and you who daily sin against a holy, just God. We don't respond rightly in our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes. We don't do like we ought to all the time. Before Christ, we're radically opposed to him. And yet God in love chose and predestined a people that he would send Christ into this world and placed all the sins of his people on Christ so that Christ died, took the place and the punishment for all those that believe in him. It was all laid on Christ, and he took and paid the price of that sin. He took the eternal wrath of God that was justly due for you and I. And that wasn't enough. Just because he forgives us and takes the punishment for his sins doesn't mean we can live forever with God. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So what else does he do? He also then gives us Christ's righteousness. Christ's perfect life, his perfect obedience, his sinless life, gives credit to us. We get Christ's righteousness. He takes on our sin and our wrath, and we get his righteousness. It is the most glorious, gracious act in all human history. It is God who sent the Son to make this possible. Right? We just read 1 John 4, 9. And this was manifested the love of God toward us. That because God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. It's only through Christ. And we see God the Father is the one that actively sent his son to accomplish this. And we see who did he do this to or for? It says himself. We see God himself being the kinsman redeemer of his people. I mean, it's often asked, who, who did God save us from? Was it Satan? No, he saved himself from himself. He saved us from the wrath of God. He paid the penalty, he paid the punishment that was due 
to God on our behalf. So God sovereignly sent his son to redeem the people to himself, from himself. And then next, notice, who governs the act? It says, according to the purpose of his will, in verse 6. It stresses God's gracious bestowal, his gracious gift of putting believers in this position as adopted sons and daughters, as co-heirs, co-rulers. And it's entirely due to the Father's own will and grace. It's independent of any sort of qualifications, any attractiveness inherent to us, and it results in something. It says it results for the praise of the glory of his grace. God chose and predestined his people for the praise of the glory of his grace. It's the design of redemption was to show off God's grace. It was designed to show off God in such a way to fill the hearts of people with wonder and praise, to to fill the lips with praise. I mean, Romans 9, 23 says, God predestined people to eternal life that he may make known the riches of his glory. It's the gracious character of salvation. And since this choosing and predestination is an act of God's glorious grace, it offends our self-righteousness. We tend to think that we're, we're good enough in ourselves, like we deserve it. But it, it, we, over, over the course of time and in and this is true for believers, too. The more distant we come from the gospel, there are times where, even though we wouldn't say it out loud, we can look at other believers and think, wow, how could they sin like that? We, like, we, we act as if we've come to a place where we actually merit God's salvation because we live a holier life than other people. Truly understanding what God is doing in salvation undercuts all of that. Because you're not good enough. You're not more deserving of salvation than your brothers and sisters. You equally need a savior, savior to save you. It strips us of all delusion of merit or power. However, though, this is glorious news to someone that is deeply convicted of their sinfulness. Somebody that is deeply convicted of their weakness, their sin, their, their need for somebody to save them. When you are at that point where you see your sinfulness and you can't get out of it, you continue to sin, you can say all you want, I'm going to stop sinning, and the next day you wake up and do the same thing, you're filled with guilt and shame, and you don't know what to do with it. This is glorious news. Because it's not about what you can do, it's about what Christ can do. It's God's love and mercy. So if that's you this morning, if you're here or you're watching on TV and, and this is you and you've been struggling, this is good news for you. The Bible says repent, turn, cast your cares and trust. We sang about it. All onto Christ. Run to him. He will save you. So we see that in, in love, God chose people. He predestined people for adoption. And next we see that God planned it all. In verse 10, we'll back up and read um, 
7 through 10, but we're going to emphasize verse 10. In 7, it says, In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This was all part of God's plan. Folks, in the very first book of your Bible, in Genesis 3.15, this plan was stated. Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation of man. We see Adam and Eve sinning against God. I mean, God says to Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. They do, but in God's gracious mercy and love, didn't kill them physically. And instead, he kicks them out of the garden, but he says this in Genesis 3.15. He's like, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on your head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. We often refer to this as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, the, the first glimpses of this gospel, that there is coming a seed of this woman that will crush the head of the snake, that will have the decisive victory. God didn't just destroy Adam and Eve and mankind in general, which he could have, and say, you know, I'm just done with these people, and I never want to deal with them again. He set out a plan to redeem for himself a people and we see it in the very first book of the Bible. And the entire story of the Bible is the outworking of this redemption story. It's one plan. And it's the same plan. It doesn't change. It's one plan from the beginning of the Bible to the end. One plan, one Savior, to redeem for himself one people that he chose and predestined. It's both in the Old and New Testament. Now, this, of course, is going to come with some objections. Which brings us to our next point, the objections. One of the objections we hear is, right, well, no, this is, it can't be God just chose and predestined people based according to his own purpose and will, right? It's, it's that he foreknew who would believe, and then those people are the people he chose and predestined. Well, I mean, the problem with that is we don't get that from our text this morning. I mean, listen to what it, it says in, in verse 5. In, in love he predestines for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through the blood forgiveness according to the riches of grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. In verse 11. In him we obtain an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I mean, in verse 11, we have all three words describing the different, um, different ways to describe God's will or desire to, to further emphasize that it's all God. It's according to God's sovereign free choice. And we can go to other passages. I mean, Romans 9, as long as Romans 9 is in the Bible, we have problems. if you're going to hold to this foreknowledge of who would believe and he chose them. Because in there he says, I love Jacob, I hated Esau. Before they could do anything right or wrong. 
And he says, simply because that's what he chose. And there's other places we could go to. But if Ephesians 1 is making it abundantly clear. He, he, go through, reread verses 3 through 14. You're going to see the sovereign God is the subject taking actions for the people. Not based on the people, but based on him and his will. The next objection. Well, this is contrary to the free will of man, isn't it? I mean, if God's choosing and predestining all this stuff, I mean, then, then he's, he's infringed upon our free will. Well, the problem with that is it's not actually what's taking place. You won't find a believer that says, I, I don't like God and I'm being forced to love him. I mean, even saying that out loud sounds silly, doesn't it? Likewise, you're not going to go to somebody that is living for themselves and want nothing to do with God to say, oh, I really love God, but I'm being forced to hate him and rebel against them. No. We consciously make choices. We consciously, um, on an earthly level, choose God. We're confronted with the gospel. I mean, we'll get more into detail on how that works on the third week and just seeing the Spirit's role in that and changing our affections. But we actually we, we choose God, but we also know from Scripture that God also is sovereignly working all things out according to the purpose of his will. Now, I, I recognize there's a little tension there. But God never gives us the solution to that tension. We just have to rest in it. Somehow, we are making decisions freely, yet God is working all things out according to his purpose without violating either. And we're like, okay, that's what the Bible teaches. We're going to believe it. And just to further drive home this point, Charles Hans Spurgeon says this, Is there any of you here this morning who wishes to be holy, who wishes to be regenerate, to leave off sin and to walk in holiness? Yes, there is, someone says. I do. Well, then God elected you. But then another person says, no, I don't want to be holy. I don't want to give up my lusts and my vices. I want to keep living for me. Well, then why should you grumble then that God hasn't elected you to it? For if you were elected, you would not like it, according to your own confession. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, what right do we as a people have to say God ought to give us something we don't even want? Another objection is this discourages evangelism. I mean, historically, this can be furthest from the truth. I mean, people that have believed this to be true have been the most evangelical people in the world. The entire missions movement with uh, the Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards, they all believe this doctrine. Why? Because when you see the love of God and the graciousness in him and in our salvation, we, it, it, it compels us to share this with others. We, we want to share this news. We want to reach the lost. We don't know who God chose and who he selects, so we're going to tell it to everybody. We want everybody to hear it. And, and also, having a right understanding of, of, of God's role alleviates us of responsibility. All we're called to do is what we're told to do. We're not responsible for the result. This is why brothers and sisters are willing to give up their life to share the gospel. Because they're not looking just to get the result out of it. It's what fuels us when we're sharing the gospel and, and 
day after day we're getting rejected and rejected and rejected. Well, if it's really pragmatic and just we're looking for uh, results, then what's the motivation to keep going? It's because we love God and we know that God has a people and we want to share this news with everybody and let God do the work. So lastly, what should our response be then? The first thing, it should humble us. How, how often do we wrap ourselves up in our own righteousness? Our, our, our own false pearls and gems of our own works and goodness. I mean, it, as, a, as a spouse, I mean, I, to my own shame, how many times you get frustrated with your spouse for something she does, not recognizing that you also do the same thing to her. Right? We have this propensity to think we're better than we are. We have a propensity to think that because we've arrived, we deserved it. We, we start to think that I'm saved because I've done this or that. Right? What evidence? How do you know you're saved? You start pointing to all the things you do. We start basing people's Christianity and, and, and their uh, uh, moral growth or their maturity levels based on what they do. Right? We forget the gospel and the graciousness of the gospel. And we start leaning toward um, merits and works. We, we in, instead need to realize that it's faith alone that saved us. He loved us when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were ungodly. I mean, we, we, we have this weird way of thinking that like we're so great that God sent his son to save us. That's a terrible way to think. You're so bad that it took his son to come save you. But he did it out of love. And he did it on your behalf. So how could he be proud? We should humble ourselves before God and others. And if we need to this morning, we need to repent of thinking that we're more deserving or we've reached a higher plane than our fellow brothers and sisters. And, and if you're hearing this and you've, you're one of those people that have come to the place where you've been struggling with sin and you've never done, you never put your faith and trust in Christ, do it. Let today be the day of your salvation. We, we, none of us are different. We're all the same. We're all sinners. We are all dead in our trespasses. So confess, repent, turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Christ and he shall surely save you. He will lovingly adopt you and bring you into his family where you too can experience the blessings and joy of being loved by God. I mean, pondering this, our response when, when we're down or discouraged, I mean, I think of times like right now in the COVID-19 and, and we're locked down and if you're a high extrovert like me being stuck at home, you're like, ah, you, you want to get out and talk to everybody, right? But you can't. You could can be discouraged. You could be down. Well, Psalm 19, 76 says, let his loving kindness be for my comfort. And, and that loving kindness is most wonderfully displayed in the gospel and what he's done for us. I mean, we, we ought to ponder and reflect on God's glorious glory and grace. 
David in Psalm 26, 3 says, Your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. See, David delighted to ponder in it. It refreshed his soul to do so. It molded his conduct. See, the, the more occupied with God's goodness that we preoccupy ourselves with, the more careful we'll be with our obedience. The more time we devote to thinking and pondering on God's goodness, His holiness, what He's done for us in the gospel, the more it's going to motivate us to live for Him. Arthur Pink rightly says, God's love and grace are more powerful to regenerate than the terrors of the law. God's love and mercy, and as we ponder and think about it, are far greater motivators than threats of the law. So we ought to ponder, we ought to think, reflect. And as we do that, it should ultimately lead us and stimulate us to worship. Psalm 63 says, Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. I pray for that for all of us this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Father, it is true your loving kindness is better than life. You're rich in mercy and grace and love. Father, as we can't even begin to search the riches and the depths of you, Lord, we, we, we have come to the place where we've noticed a few things about you this morning. In love, you've chosen us. In love, you've predestined people to be your sons, to bring them into your family. It's such a gracious, wonderful, loving act. Lord, we don't deserve it. We confess our sins to you. We confess our pride. Lord, help us to go out this week worshiping you. Help us to ponder on your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your glory. And help us to be worshipers of you. Help us to reflect your love, your mercy to others. I, I pray for little children and that have siblings that they demonstrate love and mercy to their fellow brothers and sisters. I pray for husbands and wives as we think about the goodness of God and how we don't even deserve the least of it, to then be running to be able to give our spouse the same mercy, grace, and love. I, I pray for um, singles and everybody else that's dealing with the pandemic to, to, to also be meditating on the goodness of God, even in the midst of this. God is still good. He's still working If you're working, display the love and mercy to others. At, at times we, we get caught up in the fear of the virus that we forget to love our neighbors. Help us to not do so. Because the motivation comes from you, God. You've loved us when we were the outcast, when we were the ungodly, when we didn't deserve it. So help us to do the same. Lord, we praise you and thank you in your son's holy name. Amen.